listeners, do you come here often? Welcome to another Hunt on Film podcast. Uh, today, I am Craig Eastman. Who knows who I'll be tomorrow? But what I can say for definite is that also with me today are Scott Morris. Hello. And Drew Tavendale. This is Rumour Control. Here are the facts. And on this here episode, we will be looking at the career of one of the more popular and distinguished of latter-day directors, uh, namely David Fincher. So without further ado, we should probably kick this biatch off. Um, so we're going to be addressing uh, the career of Herr Fincher uh, chronologically, so that means uh, in terms of his major works, we will be looking first of all at the much maligned Alien 3. Which one of you gentlemen is uh, is going to talk to us about Alien 3? Well, I believe that would be me. In 1992, six years after James Carmen's Aliens, another entry into the Alien series was released and was yet another film with one of those production hell stories. Its development involved numerous directors, numerous writers, including William Gibson and Rennie Harlan, and at least six different ideas of where the third film should go, many of which were Cold War analogues. However, with so many f- delays, so much fanning about, um, and including a delay created by a WGA strike, by the time a story was settled on, the Cold War was over. Well played, you boys. <laughs> <laughs> well played I love, indeed. I love that while they were looking for a, for a direction for the third film to go in, no one at any point suggested the bin. <laughs> <laughs> the time and development also saw Sigourney Weaver's Ellen Ripley relegated to a minor role, but the president of 20th Century Fox declared that Ripley was really the only female warrior we have in our movie mythology. Uh, unusually perspicacious for somebody in charge of a studio. Yes. And Weaver herself asked for a story that wasn't dependent on guns, so even further rewrites were called for. After another thousand or so versions of the screenplay, and seemingly as many writers, production finally began without a complete script, without effects legend Stan Winston, with a cinematographer who lasted only two weeks before being forced out due to illness, with strict deadlines and substantial studio interference, and with a director hitherto previously known only for music videos, Mr. David Fincher. A far from ideal situation, I'm sure you'll agree. And Alien 3 received a lukewarm response at best, and led Fincher to disown his first feature. So, it's a pretty terrible film, right? Well, no, actually. I think it gets a pretty bad and unfair rap. Mm-hmm. But a quick plot summary first for those unfamiliar with it. A fire breaks out aboard USS Sulaco, where Ripley, Newt, Corporal Hicks and Bishop are in stasis after their ordeal at the end of Aliens. The computer launches the stasis tubes in an escape pod, and the pod lands on Fury 161, a penal and work colony full of violent, antisocial male criminals. Either through the crash landing or the fire, Hicks and Newt die, and Ripley is told that she is the only survivor. This, of course, is inaccurate, as there is a facehugger also on board, which soon attacks an inmate's pet dog, and once the gestation period is over, bye-bye Poochie, hello terrifying alien hunter. In a manner similar to the original alien, the single creature begins to stalk the surviving inmates and pick them off one by one, causing fear and tensions in the population, and requiring that these violent, brutal and antisocial men work with each other, and Ripley, in order to kill it. There's a slight knot in this plan, though, 
in that the only person with experience and skill facing the aliens, Ripley, turns out to be host to an alien queen embryo. Weakened and short on time, Ripley must direct efforts to trap the alien in the prison's smelting facility and then end her own life before either the alien emerges from her chest or the duplicitous Wayland yutani Corporation arrive to turn the alien into a weapon. Now, Alien 3 really didn't get a great response when it was released, as Fincher's disowning of his own work would suggest, and I in fact remember not being enormously enamoured of it at the time. But I was 13, and was many years away from having my critical faculties fully developed. However, having revisited it a few times since, I actually quite like it. While it's not as good as either of the preceding films in the series, it has its own appeals. Perhaps most notable is the lack of conventional weapons. Not having guns increases the tension and requires inventiveness um, from the characters as well as the screenwriters. Also, while the crews of both the Sulaco and the Nostromo had the potential to disintegrate, there was never the threat from them that the criminals of Fury 161 posed to the lone woman of Ripley. It's also got a few aces acting-wise. There's something reassuring about Brian Glover as Warden Andrews, <laughs> though I accept that's partly because it's impossible not to associate his voice with the idea of a nice cup of tea. <laughs> that's exactly what I was going to say. You can, reassure, you can be reassured Brian Glover will put the kettle on when you need it. Yes. Um, then you have the erudition of Charles Dance and the power and authority of Charles S. Dutton. And while these are gifted and dependable actors, with the mess this film was in when shooting began, then the fact that such good performances and such a competent, if imperfect, final product could be wrought from it is surely testament to the skill of the director. And perhaps, most importantly, it's not Alien Resurrection. (laughs) (laughs) Or Alien vs Predator. Or Alien vs Predator 2. Or Prometheus. Or Prometheus, yes. (laughs) For all of which we should be eternally grateful. <laughs> I've always had a soft spot for uh, Alien 3 since game. I think we spoke about this um, a couple of episodes ago, wasn't it? Somehow this turned up, and I think I'd mentioned yes. even even to the point where I read the novelisation <laughs> for some oh, reason. Yes, uh-huh. Yeah, I've always had an appeal for that, but I don't I don't stake that as some sort of claim to having been um, intellectually enabled before my time. More that probably I had very shit taste as a 13-year-old and it somehow just happened to transition at the right time uh, into actually having some critical faculties in a point where um, I probably would have started to appreciate it more anyway. Um, yeah, I think there's a lot to be said for the inventiveness and after the Vietnam and space bombast of uh, aliens, uh, it was quite a nice turn of um, quite a nice turn of tone. And I think if only that every franchise in the world actually dared to shift um, so tonally from entry to entry. <laughs> are are you listening, Fast and Furious? <laughs> um, <laughs> or Star Wars? Yes. Um, then I think the the cinematic universe would be a better place. But yeah, I've always really really enjoyed Alien Three. It's by no means perfect uh, at the time. I don't think I could really appreciate that the where the the gaps and where the studio uh, interference had taken place. Now uh, to look back on it, uh, look back on it, I think it's very obvious. 
Um, but for all that, yes, I still very much appreciate it. And having revisited it just a couple of months ago, actually, I was, um, yeah, I was pleasantly surprised to find that I enjoyed it still just as much today. Um, and yes, there's a lot to like about it. Not least of all that the location scouts decided that a horrifically polluted alien landscape ought to be shot on an English beach, um, <laughs> which, <laughs> uh, which I remember being a great source of amusement at the time. But yes, it gets a thumbs up from me. Yeah, my abiding memory from when I watched it last time, which would have been about a decade ago, was that, as in line with you guys, I think it's unfairly maligned. It's not great by any stretch of the imagination. But it's an interesting twist on the formula, and it's not entirely unwatchable, certainly when you compare it with what came after it. Um, but when I came to watch it this time, it was barely watchable. It was an absolute mess. Uh, it turns out that this was the first time I'd watched the recut version that the, the special cut. effects producer put together, the, the assembly cut, which is as close as you'll get to the director's cut, given that Fincher's uh, attitude toward it is not entirely positive. Uh, and it's really this version that's prompted something of a mild reappraisal of the film. Um, mm. If you look around, you'll see people kind of giving it a bit more plaudits this time through, which is baffling to me because it's significantly worse. <laughs> uh, it inflates around time uh, with scenes where nothing of any interest happens. Um, I think it was supposed to be trying to fill out some of the cultist characters, which, well, at least I think that was the intent, but mm. they don't. it's really just them sitting about talking and not really adding anything to it. I had about 30 minutes, Scott. It's a, it's a yeah. pretty substantial chunk, isn't it? I still haven't watched the Assembly Cut. No, I was and going to until Scott told me he'd watched no, the Assembly I, Cut I and think, it was awful. So. I think it's much worse. They've, they've recut a lot of the action with some really laughable video toaster-esque CG graphics <laughs> that, that would have looked bad in 92 and you know just terrible if that's what you're thinking the best you can come up with now given any sort of budget. It was... Uh, really quite bad and it changes things for no good reason like they, they rather than it being a dog alien it's it's a cow the, 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 all right the, the, it's like why would you change that detail what possible difference does that make it's <laughs> absolutely pointless so it just uh, it's beef just always makes a difference scott yes <laughs> just inflating uh the running time so personally i think you should not watch the assembly cut. It is it is longer, but adds very little. I think there's maybe one extra scene of dialogue with uh, between Charles Dance and uh, Sigourney Weaver, which is quite good because it's just nice to see them riffing off each other. But it doesn't really tell you anything more than you got in the film already. So I don't think it's actually all that it's cracked up to be. I think the theatrical version is far uh, superior than the one that you should be watching. And yes, I, other than that, I, I concur with you boys. I think it's far from great, but it's, it's certainly very watchable. An interesting twist on it. Gans interessant. Uh, shall we move on then to 1995's Seven, which I think is probably fair to say um, the first of Fincher's films that really caught mainstream attention, um, certainly with the public. Yes, or Se7N, as it's infuriatingly stylized. <laughs> so it's no sense at all. Uh, much to his, his distaste, grizzled veteran detective Somerset, Morgan Freeman, is teamed up with a largely idealistic, naive, hot-headed detective Mills, Brad Pitt, on the cusp of Somerset's retirement. Uh, their initial amniosity, which predictably enough will become respect over the course of the piece, must go on the back burner when it becomes clear a serial killer is at work in New York's five boroughs. The 
to move through the procedural motions while uncovering the five murder sites based loosely around seven deadly sins before the killer, Kevin Spacey's John Doe, unexpectedly gives himself up as part of his cunning master plan to make himself and Bill's exemplars of the last two remaining sins. Uh, Now, you have to applaud Fincher's sense of continuity, taking the same dark, dilapidated, dingy tone of Alien 3 and moving it wholesale to New York, which hasn't looked this unappealing on the silver screen since the days of Taxi Driver. Uh, Fits the subject matter well, although the almost relentless grime grows wearying. Um, uh, A lot of this film's appeal to emotion appears to me to be based upon the shock value of the tableaus that John Doe is creating, but there's nothing like a couple of decades of torture porn to lessen the shock value of this film. Uh, A confession. Before preparing for this podcast, I hadn't seen Seven, largely because, while I missed it first time around, I couldn't miss the relentless parrying and the inevitable spoilers of John Doe's final trick. So for me, by this point, it's been quite comprehensively defanged, and as a result, I don't find that there's much left in Seven for me to appreciate. Freeman is motivated, so gives a commendable performance, but this was the time of Brad Pitt only just emerging from his chrysalis of improved acting ability, and for my money, 12 Monkeys was by far the better turn of this time period. Not to say that he's bad as such, but I don't find him particularly engaging here. Uh, But if you're not all that impressed by the grisly details of the murders, I don't think there's an awful lot else going on here to care about. There's not much in the way of investigation going on, and what little there is feels a lot like filler material to pad time between the killings. The main duo get some character development over the course of the piece, but nothing that's not resolutely conforming to John and Orms. Uh, perhaps the biggest disappointment is Spacey's John Doe, who's quite the most boring psychopath I've seen since Dick Cheney was last interviewed. <laughs> He's so bland it's difficult to care what his motivations are, which is just as well as you're not really going to get any joy in that front either. Uh, <laughs> being crazy seems to be its own reward in this instance. Uh, Perhaps I wasn't able to appreciate the intended impact, as I say. This was ruined for me uh, before I could even get anywhere near it, so uh, I'm not best placed to really judge it. Uh, But it is probably the biggest disappointment for me in this podcast. It's certainly not his worst film, uh, but obviously it has quite the reputation, and when I got down to watching it, I feel it's just a mix of cliched structure and try-hard, dark and edginess, so beloved of the 90s, and it made it feel like it's just a very old film. It feels like it's aged quite poorly. Uh, he's done much better serial filler, uh, serial killer based films which we will talk about in due course mm-hmm. and I would probably recommend that in Seven's place, uh, for me at least this is a swing and a miss I know I'm in a minority opinion of that one so I'll pass this over to one of you boys <laughs> I know I'm, I am I remember at the time in the cinema seeing Seven and coming out thinking that is the best thing I've seen in my life and I think I was, I felt that way because it's the first time that I had seen a film so completely commit to what must have been at the time a very sort of dangerously unpopular vision of bleakness and having the nuts to follow through on that ending, which obviously, I mean, um, it's part of Hollywood lore now, the lengths Fincher went to to, uh, and having to shoot um, an alternate ending where Mills climbs back in through the window and saves his wife from John Doe at the last minute sort of thing and they all live happily ever after, but... Yeah, I mean, the level to which this film committed to that darkness, and obviously as someone in their mid-teens at the the time, I thought that was the best thing ever. And I think um, Seven's always going to be a victim of its own success in that it was very much at the spearhead of that thing in the mid-90s. It very much informed um, that uh, tone of darkness that, that came afterwards. But yeah, I 
I agree with you largely about the whole issue of it having been defanged now by other elements of popular culture, most notably, as you say, the whole sort of torture porn movement. Yeah. Um, That's not the film's fault, but I no, can only, I can only but call you it can. I can see it from where I am. Yeah, now, ex- exactly. No, and I think on my most recent viewing of it, I felt largely the same way. And what I found was that um, it's... Uh, if it works successfully as anything now, because no, I didn't enjoy it, and I don't think it's it's weathered as well as we might have hoped. Um, if it succeeds at anything uh, tonally and atmospherically, I, I felt it still remained a pretty good exercise in that whole sort of rain town aesthetic. Um, <laughs> it's visually, visually, it's um, it's right up there with Blade Runner in terms of sort of a, a, a you know alluring um, awfulness, um, but. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, it's still it's still an interesting piece, and I think it's still very notable for the way that it committed to its vision. And um, yes, uh, my abiding memory of it will always be uh, coming out of the cinema on that first viewing. But um, time has wearied it, unfortunately. Although Drew, I don't know, you may feel very differently. Um, it's not wearied for me as much because I um, I have indulged in very little of the whole torture porn genre. Never interested me. I've never seen a Saw film, for instance, so. I've not really been subject to quite so much of that. I just really like this film aesthetically. I just, yeah, I like the rain town. I mean, it's, I don't know, it doesn't actually say in the film, I think, where it is. It's um, it was all shot in Los Angeles. It always looked to me more like Baltimore, but I don't think they ever say where it is, but just it's rain town USA. Mm-hmm. Um, I like the look of that and uh, kind of got hooked to the mystery of finding the the people and tried to find out who John Doe was I agree a little with Scott about uh, Kevin Spacey being a little bland um, particularly when you remember in that very same year he was also verbal kint in The Usual Suspects and mm. which everything pales in comparison to uh, yeah I don't know I don't have much to add to what you two have said though I just I like the film I like the performances it's um, maybe not aged as well as some of his other films, so as you say, it's an entirely acceptable thriller. I think, I mean, it's always going to get a pass because it gave us Gwyneth Paltrow's head in a box. No, that that um, goes for a lot, really, yes. Yes, especially since the advent of Goop. Gwyneth Paltrow's head and a cardboard box in a dance as old as time. Um, it's always, it's, it'll always, it'll always get a pass in my book for that, for that alone. Um, Yes, I'm not going to. No, I'm not going to say what I was going to say other than that. But yes, uh, interesting, very interesting. Sorry, Scott, were you going to say something else? No, no, nothing. I was going to say it's a suggestion for Amazon to improve the service. <laughs> <Start> <laughs> if I if I want to respond to that email, <laughs> oh dear. In that case, then I will move on to 1997's The Game. Um, Nick Van Orton is a modern-day Ebenezer Scrooge, a wealthy, self-obsessed San Francisco businessman whose financial success, built upon that of his late father, has come at the expense of his personal social well-being. Of all parties who recall his birthday, Nick is the least interested, certainly less so than his estranged brother Conrad, who makes a rare departure from his own hedonistic existence to deliver Nick his gift, an invite from the nebulously monikered Consumer Recreation Services. 
quite who CRS are and what do they do is a matter of mystery, but following an application process of multiple choice psych profiling and physical examination, Nick enters his game, a series of staged, often initially innocuous events inserted into his everyday life that seem to steer him through an increasingly nightmarish San Francisco on a voyage alternating between humiliation and self-discovery. As the game gradually reveals itself as something increasingly more sinister than first envisaged, Nick is aided and or hindered by a number of incidental characters, including Deborah Kara Unger as a waitress, and also crosses paths again with Conrad, now apparently also enmeshed in some sort of game of his own. The game is one of the more interesting entries in Fincher's canon, coming somewhat emboldened off the back of the critical and commercial success of Seven, and at the same time foreshadowing the seedy male identity crisis of Fight Club. There are things it does well, initially at least, in pursuit of its goal of blurring the lines between reality and fiction, sanity and mental dysfunction. Fincher's trademark darkness fueled visual style is front and centre here, perhaps even more so than in any of his other movies, and at times the game feels oppressive enough that it might exist in the same midnight cityscape odyssey universe as something like The Warriors. <laughs> in terms of performance, the cast are serviceable enough. <laughs> Nick Van Orden, come out to play! And though it may not quite be... <laughs> Sorry. In terms of performance, the cast are serviceable enough, and though it might not quite be peak Douglas, it does plot a point on a definite upward trajectory toward Wonder Boys and traffic. Living somewhere between the end of a mahogany boardroom desk and a leather armchair in an otherwise empty mansion, Douglas's Van Orton is a convincingly miserable sod, consumed by emptiness, whose only company comes from the help and an endless stream of TV news business updates. The script hints at the influence of Nick's tragic past. A birthday meal beneath a covered plate turns out to be a burger, perhaps a favourite food of a man denied much of his childhood. And we are primed to expect much symbolism around the significance of Nick's 48th birthday, being that on which his father took his own life, though ultimately little, if anything, comes of it. The weakest link is Penn, whose unconvincing histrionics somewhere around the middle reel suggest he probably (laughs) wanted an easy couple of mil and a long weekend in San Fran having gone round the twist with Oliver Stone for (laughs) U-turn. By and large, though, the players do as much as might be expected in servicing a plot that rapidly spirals into absurdity. The game's only real misstep is that its reach so thoroughly and needlessly exceeds its grasp, and unfortunately (laughs) it does so to such a degree that any presumption the filmmakers may have had regarding their audience's ability to suspend their disbelief proves woefully misjudged and, ultimately, a death blow. Um, There's definitely an entertaining and thought-provoking movie somewhere in here, but so thoroughly entangled is it with the movie's reliance on increasingly convoluted plot contrivances Mm -hmm. that it has somewhat had the life choked out of it. Initially, Nick's encounters with the influence of CRS upon his world are stretched, but within the ballpark of audience goodwill. Um, By the time two hours have passed, however, (laughs) we have seen any number of engineered situations where the only conceivable outcome for Nick is certain death. (laughs) And yet, time and again, in such situations as being trapped in a sinking car, Nick has the presence of mind to remember the one item improbably enabled by CRS to allow him to escape unscathed and continue along his deranged narrative. If the peril rings untrue, then it's certainly backed up by the outcome of Nick's ordeal. As an audience, we are expected to believe that this cold, self-absorbed and bloody-minded businessman would react to his life being so flagrantly jeopardised on so many occasions in any other way than to immediately sue every mother in the room. I was going for murder, but Sue's close enough. <laughs> instead, instead, we are presented with a miraculous moment of clarity from our lead, 
a placid, unquestioning acceptance of 48 years wasted in pursuit of success and an immediate desire to follow Deborah Cara Unger's character, presumably toward a new, more fulfilled life. It is asking far too much to accept these contrivances and the likelihood of their outcome, and while I admire Fincher and his screenwriters the courage of their conviction, I also call bullshit on their ridiculously broken internal plot logic. (laughs) While I by no means detest the game, in fact, I still kind of like aspects of it, I did find this, my first viewing since it was first released, far less forgiving than I had expected. And my more developed adult faculties infinitely less able to set aside my concerns around plot. In the end, it's all a little too... silly, really. (laughs) I'm not going to outright advise you to avoid it, but I can't necessarily recommend the game much beyond an interesting waypoint in Fincher's career. And... Judging, ju- unless you're just being incredibly polite, I think some of your laughter I interpreted as agreement. Uh, agreement. I really am struggling tonight. <laughs> I'm inventing words. Um, I interpreted that as broadly agreement, but I may be wrong. Can you dig it? No. You're right. No, we can't. It's bad. It's a really stupid film. And I, I was kind of, this is the other real disappointment for me in this podcast. Another film I hadn't seen. Uh, but I'd heard enough people saying, "Oh, it's 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 a it's a rewarding, twisty, turny thriller thing." Like, if by okay, twist I'll... you mean sh- just <laughs> silly things that someone wrote that make no sense, it's, it, it keeps twisting in one direction, and that direction is towards. <laughs> <laughs> um, yes, no, I didn't like this at all. Um, as I say, it stretches credibility way past suspension of disbelief, and uh, yeah, I, I just could not care much of it, particularly the ending, an absolute cop out. Um, <laughs> Yes, it's doing its best in its defence to hide how silly it is with the pace of the thing, uh, which is pretty breakneck, and you don't really have a lot of time to dwell on the omnipotence that the company has, but it just can't move fast enough to mm. escape uh, gravity, the, the gravity of rational thinking. Um, yes. Yes. Um, uh, yeah, not good. Didn't like it. Uh, I don't regret watching it, to be honest. Um, and the... I suppose in the kind of mechanics of filmmaking, it's another solid reference on Fincher's CV, but as mm. a story, it's garbage. <laughs> it keeps Hot stopping garbage. to explain stuff that it really just it shouldn't have bothered, and it, it frankly can't. There was the bit, I don't remember it from the first time round, but there's a bit where um, he turns up at the house of Deborah Car- uh, Cara Unger's character, who I can't remember her name now, the waitress, but he turns up at her house, and then CRS agents Christine. turn up. Christine. He turns up at Christine's house, and then a van full of CRS agents turn up and start shooting the absolute shit out of the house and debris is raining down around them. I mean, the house gets absolutely perforated. And then later in the film, in the sort of climactic rooftop scene where she's trying to talk him out of just wailing on everybody with a gun, she's trying to explain to him, no, 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 when they came to us, they were firing blanks. No, they weren't. Your house was getting shot to pieces. (laughs) It's also partly not deployed to police. Yes, you're you're trying to you're issuing alternative facts. You're, <laughs> you're lying through your teeth. They weren't firing blanks. I saw it with my own eyes, and it wastes its time trying to explain that stuff. Um, it's bizarre. It would it would work in the context of fantasy or dream logic or something like that. But as a as a straight story, it just doesn't fly. Uh, so you mentioned their fantasy and dream logic and. They do a with Scott mentioning the crazy omnipotence of CRS. Mm. Uh, they seem to be able to control effectively an entire city. Um, oh, on a level, on a level where, uh, and uh, I mean, he ends up in Mexico at one point. They operate on a level where governments would have to be involved. Yeah, <laughs> uh, it's um, if this was something like a setting like Dark City, 
then yeah. it could work. And that's basically the only time. Um, yeah. I, like Scott, had never seen this before, before a few months ago when we were preparing for this podcast. Mm-hmm. And likewise, I had heard several good things about it, possibly from yourself, Craig. Uh, I know you hadn't seen it for a long time until recently. I certainly remembered it as being better than this. Yeah. And I watched this and I genuinely hate this film. Mm. <laughs> it's, for me, comfortably the worst of David Fincher's films. And it is... It goes back to what you said um, towards the beginning of your... Um, I was going to say screed, but that sounds like I'm dismissing what you're saying or something horrible. <laughs> That's not what I mean. No, no, I can't no. think of the word. And it's... The sheer number, even like within the first 20 minutes, the sheer number of things that could go wrong mm-hmm. that have to be explained or just have an incredible amount of suspension of disbelief. And the taxi scene, which you mentioned, is the one that really gets me. Yeah. Uh, you're driving a car into a harbour. There's so many things that could go wrong with that. But not only that, that he, he happened to stop that taxi in the first yes, place. Exactly, yes, exactly. So it's every two minutes there's something that could... The whole um, film hinges on either something happening or not happening, that if anything else happened at all, the whole thing mm-hmm. would fall apart. And I really detest films that are built yeah. like that. It's, it goes way beyond suspension of disbelief. It's interesting that... Um, it's really interesting that you mentioned Dark City actually um, invoking um, that it could only really be explained away by supernatural um, influence because the other thing, the other film that I brought to mind actually, and it was only about half an hour ago before we started recording, I thought, oh yeah actually, the other thing, the other framework you could have for that, it would have to be something like the Adjustment Bureau, where there's some sort of (laughs) you know, reality operating behind our reality to explain away this stuff because, I'm sorry in our universe as it currently operates or within our best understanding of how it operates, <laughs> the game just doesn't work. Yeah, that's um, yeah, the entire thing depends so much on him doing a specific thing or other people doing a specific thing or not doing something and it just makes no sense. And, you know you think he's found the one real gun that they missed, but mm-hmm. what's to stop him going and getting an actual gun from somewhere else? Exactly. You know, if something like that had happened, um, or simply pulling a knife on someone, yeah. anything or like that. he gets a different tax. Or just at one point earlier in the film, he decides not to go along with this, and then suddenly um, everything's screwed. So it's it just hangs it's, so much on the necessity yeah. of people acting in a certain way or doing a certain thing, and it's too much. Even the way the characters portrayed as well, Drew. I just felt like. Um, I didn't find it believable that a man such as the the character that Nick Van Orton's painted with would entertain these guys at the application process at the point yeah. at which they said it'll take two hours max and then he ended up there all day. That that in itself just didn't ring true. He would have walked out at some point and said, I've had yeah. enough of this. Um, yeah, he would have given, given them maybe 15 minutes of his time. Well, no, I'm yeah. losing money by doing this. I'm a stockbroker or whatever. It's like, yeah. literally costing me money to be here. I mean, it's yeah. preposterous enough that I don't think there's any character in the world that would go through what the, <laughs> this poor sword was put through. And then anyway, they go, oh, ha, 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 funny joke, guys, and join a big birthday party after falling on a bouncy castle. Going, yay, this, is, yeah. this was great. I've, this has certainly changed my outlook on life. I would, I, you would either have a nervous breakdown or you would punch yeah. everyone in the room. Yeah, you, Craig said, you, um, you made you made me believe that I'd killed my own brother, and yes. so racked with grief was I that I've just <laughs> tried to commit suicide. This is the best birthday party ever. Yes, yeah, uh, 
Piggy said suing earlier, but yeah, apart from like, the mental anguish you think you would be experiencing then. Yeah. I think the first thing dude, I would do is start attacking people. people. Yeah. The ordeal of people says, the first I would do is be, where are the real guns? <laughs> yeah. Use are people going to die. <laughs> it's literally the man's been psychologically tortured to the point where he's tried to commit suicide and it's some <laughs> sort of reward. Oh, my days. Yeah, so for all but of listen, those reasons, it's so flimsy. That's why this is my least favourite David Fincher film by a distance. What's that, Scott? Preposterous film. Take it away from us. Yes, take it away from us. But look at the discussion it's engendered. So, yes, <laughs> worth it for that alone. Um, so we're going to move on to something that I think is probably safe to say it's going to be a lot more popular with people. Drew, you are going to talk about the Mighty Mighty Fight Club. Well, having said that, should you really talk about Fight Club? Oh, it didn't take long to go down that route, did it? No, it didn't. Okay. Deal with it. I'm not beneath the cheapest of jokes. We know this. <laughs> this is why we love stroke tolerate you. I just love stroking him. <laughs> is it wrong that I'm aroused? <laughs> it's expected. <laughs> While Seven is the film that brought David Fincher to the world's attention... I'd argue that it is with 1999's Fight Club, an adaptation of Chuck Palahniuk's 1996 novel, that he really made his name. Edward Norton's narrator suffers from chronic insomnia, but his doctor refuses to prescribe him anything to treat it, suggesting instead that he visit a cancer survivor support group to see how relatively easy he has it. Now, I'm pretty sure that's not good medical practice, but let's set that aside for now. But it clearly works. Yes. <laughs> To his surprise, he finds relief and catharsis at the session and soon becomes a support group junkie, pretending to have survived the same disease or condition as all of the poor souls he encounters. His mellow soon gets harsh, though, when he begins to notice Helena Bonham Carter's Marla as several of these groups and recognises her as being like him and finds her presence unwelcome as it reminds him of his own mendacity and dishonesty. He then finds another outlet for his frustration, after meeting a soap salesman called Tyler Durden on a business flight, he moves into Tyler's house after discovering that his flat has been destroyed in an explosion. They then often go out to a bar together and get into fights outside. After doing this a few times, they attract a crowd and soon set up their own fight club in the bar's basement, where men meet to fight one another for leisure. It becomes so popular. It becomes so popular that Tyler and the narrator set up franchise clubs all over the US. Tyler then turns these clubs, unbeknownst to the narrator, into an anti-corporate anarchist group called Project Mayhem, which performs acts of vandalism, sabotage and terrorism. Outraged by this, the narrator begins hunting for the now absent Tyler, only to discover that, that he is, in fact, Tyler and that they are two personalities sharing the same body. The film concludes with Tyler's plans to wipe out the debt by destroying the buildings which contain credit card company records and the narrator's attempts to separate himself from Tyler. Uh, this is a film that didn't do so well in the cinema, but is uh, another film that gathered a cult, ga- a cult following on home video. And can you just say how depressing it is that a film that took over a hundred million at the box office is, you know, considered a failure and a mm. classic? It's a strange <laughs> label to apply to something that's taken that yeah. much money. Yes, but that's okay. Hollywood for you. Unfortunately, <laughs> I don't make yes. those rules. Um, and 
In keeping with many cult films, this is yet another cult film where a large selection of its fan base and critics took entirely the wrong message from it, seeing it as glorifying violence, and this came, inevitably, with the media fears that people would copy the film and found their own fight clubs, a fear as breathlessly hyperbolic and moralising as such things usually are, when, in fact, the violence in Fight Club is there because it's the one time where these men can feel something real, in a world in which they are numbed, anaesthetised, and where only materialism and consumption matter, not experience. It's also considered a a treatise on mid-90s... How would you describe it? Identity crisis in men, particularly men in their 30s. Mm. The emasculation of a, a generation. Yes, um, as the film says, we're a, um, a generation of men raised by women. Uh, the middle children of history. Yes, children of the baby boomers and feeling they don't quite have a place in the world. And one of the things that set out quite early was David Fincher's penchant for stylism. Um it's perhaps either the nadir or zenith of that, depending on how you approach that. But it's a very, very distinctive looking film. It's kind of ugly in many respects, which is very deliberate. It's meant to reflect the characters, their masculine crisis and the their desire for reality. I would say Fight Club, it's... It's currently my favourite of Fincher's movies and I was obsessed by this film for a long, long time. As was I. Yeah. It's I think visually I think it's his most strongly realised film. Um I also think I tend to think of literary adaptations in two categories. I think of literary adaptations which are very literal, um sort of directly transposed adaptations, and then there are those that sort of take an idea or, um, you know, the kernel of a story. So something like Jaws, for example, and sort of go off on their own sort of tangent with it and they don't necessarily stay truthful mm-hmm. to the uh, source material or faithful to the sto- source material um, at large. Um, and in that first category of sort of direct transpositions from the book, this remains like one of the best adaptations from a novel that I think I've ever seen. Yeah, the, I think the way in which it captures the the air and the the just the, the feeling of, of the book, the sentiment mm-hmm. of the book, and it doesn't just capture it it doesn't just capture it in the script, it captures it tonally and aesthetically um and atmospherically. I just think I, I just I was in love with this film for such a long, long time and uh it just yeah, it's one of those films that when I sat down and thought about it, I couldn't couldn't really justify it in my top ten favourite movies of all time um, list that we spoke about um, way back when. But it wasn't it wasn't far out. And if you'd asked no, me even a couple of years ago, actually. yeah, if you'd and asked me a couple of years ago, it probably would have been. You mentioned the book too. This for me is one of only a handful of films ever that I think is genuinely better than the book it's based on, mm. and that pretty much never happens I would probably agree I mean it's so very close to the book which is part of it I think as you say but uh, I think this is one that just seems to in this transition to the screen has somehow improved on the spirit of the book yeah it's one of those rare occasions where I think the director has just gotten the source material or um, you know when you find yourself relating to 
um, you find yourself relating to a certain aspect of something and then you know someone come along and adapts it and you find out that their idea of it was something totally different mm-hmm. and that they were reading it a, an entirely different way to you. That's one of the few occasions where I just feel like someone else got it. But this is where Scott probably chips in and says, Pish! <laughs> no, there's an awful lot to enjoy in Fight Club. It's consistently innovative, it's imaginative, interesting, uh, the characters are well-drawn, they're compelling, it's probably career-best turns from Norton and Pitt, maybe even Bonham Carter, even though it's a smaller role. Uh, visually and sonically, it's as much an assault as a film, and <laughs> while that might be a barrier friendly for some, I kind of enjoyed how uh, how much this film eschews conventionality, and I'll let you guys out, I did... Love this film greatly in my, my earlier days. I think when I go back and revisit it these days, it does take on a somewhat different tone now. Um, I mean, my problems with the film are almost nothing to do with the film, but more fans of the film. Uh, there are a good chunk of the audience that treats this as a manifesto rather than a shaggy dog story, which is a bit disturbing. Yeah. I mean, I've always enjoyed it, but I don't take any part of this remotely seriously. Um uh, and its call for violent struggle as a foundation of male character, uh, heading into casual terrorism, always looked a bit weird to us, uh, well, I assume, for us that grew up in the UK with uh, the shadow of IRA terrorism all the way through it. But mm. even these days, post 9 11, it stands out a bit more. And the whole kind of rise of the demagogue, the fascistic overtones of Durden's little cult of personality, sort of stands out as a harbinger of the alt right foundation. That's <laughs> see, that most of the, the film seem to, the, well, most of the alt right seem to identify with it. And uh, that does start to repel me from it a little bit, if I'm honest with you. Um, yeah. I've never quite understood why anyone could run through this thing saying, oh, we're being emasculated by sofas, and <laughs> think that was somehow valid as an argument in any way, shape, or form. Yeah. And, and let alone the people who actually do believe that are mostly the same people that will then go on and criticise millennials for being snowflakes when there is nothing more snowflakey than thinking Ikea is out to destroy <laughs> mankind or your, your, your concept of That's manliness. It. That's uh, it. Yeah, so, so yeah the, the, notion, the notion that we've had no great war to fight, so therefore, yes, we're going to fight Ikea. Uh, um, there's a lot of things around the film in this sort of miasma that surrounds it that I really look at quite critically and horribly these days. I don't like that at all, but if you wade your way through that and just actually concentrate on the film itself. I think the film itself still stands up really well. Yeah. Hugely yeah, imaginative, innovative and just so forceful and powerful. Very I think with the fans, Scott, and that's what I mentioned earlier too, and the idea that this is some sort of manifesto, but there's just sort of, I don't know if it's willful misunderstanding or not of people that um, think that would be something like Fight Club, but they've obviously never actually paid much attention to the film because while part of the narrator's personality is obviously conjured up Tyler in this this rage um, and against whatever IKEA, whatever it happens to be, whether it's real or imagined in his life. He shies away from it in the end. Yes, he wakes. Yeah. He tries to undo what Tyler's done. He realizes, yes. oh no, I went too far. That was wrong. But the point the is, he who... comes to the realization that it's a pretty stupid way to think. Yeah, <laughs> um, and they seem to miss the point entirely. But certainly, there's a. There's a whole lot that can be taken out of this film or read into it. Yeah. And there's... And Fincher himself talked about, yeah. Fincher's talked about it being a pointless fascism. Um, there's the thing about a rejection of materialism, about social emasculation. Yes, maybe we don't believe so much that that's actually a thing, but that's mm. the theme of the film. The one thing I... Sorry, I like speaking a moment. No, no, uh, you're all right. The one thing that I cannot get on board with, though, is 
the idea of it being a romantic comedy as the screenwriter suggests because that's clearly barking mad <laughs> I'm not quite sure Jim Ills um, has said that he sees Fight Club as a romantic comedy and I can only assume he's taking the piss and or crack <laughs> <laughs> but hey you know he adapted it so he ought to know I think um, I think for me in your late teens early 20s I think there was a lot to be said for that message and there was a lot um, that I myself looked and thought there's a certain appeal to that that sort of the dark nihilism of it and yes I feel like uh, in, in all my life experience as a as a as a 21 year old I really feel like I've been sidelined and emasculated by his <laughs> history and then yes you get to your 30s and you're like I'm quite glad that I'm in the generation that hasn't had to fight a great war because that means I'm still here. Yeah, that's <laughs> a, a good lot, thing. Yes, there's a lot to be said for that. But uh, yeah, I mean, if you take it in the spirit it's intended and you understand ultimately what the message of the film is, it still holds up remarkably well. And I still, um, I mean, I'll talk about it a little bit later. But I mean, it's Fight Cup's probably still um, currently my favourite of Fincher's canon. Also uh, mine. Yeah, but um, I have a, I have a feeling it may be supplanted by something else. But as I say, we'll we'll talk about that a wee bit later. But for now, uh, lost. Let's talk about possibly my least favourite Fincher <laughs> film, Panic Room. Scott. Yes, off the back of Fight Club, I don't think anyone would have picked this altogether more conventional script as the obvious next step for Fincher's directorial career. But apparently, after the sprawling Fight Club, he wanted to pick something rather more contained and intimate. So, enter Panic Room, and unfortunately. Another troubled gestation, uh, with bust-ups with his DP and withdrawal of Nicole Kidman just before shooting due to an injury. So Jodie Foster takes over as the lead role as uh, Meg Altman, moving into a nice old house in Manhattan after her divorce, along with her daughter Sarah, played by Kirsten Stewart. It seems much bigger than they need, even coming equipped with a titular panic room, as installed by the previous owner. But before they have the ch- even have the chance to unpack, things start to go bump in the night. Not ghosts, thankfully, but a selection of robbers up to no good who are in time revealed to be Junior, Jared Leto, a carer for the now-dead prior owner who has learned of a secret stash of cash hidden in the house, Forrest Whitaker's Burnham, who works for the security company that installed the house's panic room, and Dwight Joachim's Raoul, a general-purpose thug playing a floating sweeper role. While they keep their efforts to break in relatively quiet, it's clear that they're not expecting anyone to be in the house yet, and they alert Meg, who scampers off with Sarah into the panic room. Normally a good plan, but the mystery treasure these lads are after resides in a floor safe inside that room. And so, while they set about uh, finding ways to flush them out, Meg and Sarah try to find ways of attracting attention to their plight, with a somewhat artificial clock being put on things by diabetic Sarah's falling blood sugar level and the missing insulin injection. If it was insulin, that would make her extra dead. It's glucagon. Thanks, Drew. Their attempts are aided by a certain amount of pre-existing strains between the robbers, with Burnham's distaste for Raoul's violent streak evident, uh, leading to some small measure of redemption, redemption for him by the end of the film, but perhaps nowhere near as enough, uh, certainly as the script would want you to have with them. I mean, he is still a thief at the end of the day and does markers for go to markers for humanity go, administering a life-saving injection to a dying child rather than, well, not, isn't much <laughs> more than a baseline. Um, there is perhaps not all that much glaringly wrong about Panic Room, but it's very much the most mundane of the films we've spoken about so far and probably will go on to. And it's 
probably the one where Fincher's visual slickness integrates the least well with the narrative. Yes. Uh, giving mm. the film a very unsettling feel, but an entirely different one to the one that the script wants to create. Uh, I've no real issues with any of the performances from the cast, but well, there's not really much in the way of challenging material for them to get their teeth into. And the film's competent, but almost completely unremarkable in every way. Uh, Fincher, a man who's gratifyingly not the permanent hype jockey when on PR junkets said of this, and also partially the game, that he didn't look at Panic Room and think, wow, this is going to set the world on fire. These are footnote movies, guilty pleasure movies, thrillers, women trapped in a house movies. They're not particularly important. (laughs) Perhaps the only problem with this analysis is that while there's not much to feel guilty about in Panic Room, there's not a great deal to take take pleasure in either. Uh, Yes, (laughs) A bit of a non-entity, really. Um, there's not much to Panic Room. Uh, I, don't, no. I don't necessarily regret watching it, but it stands out like a sore thumb amongst the rest of Fincher's work as something that is just remarkable, just subpar. I regret watching it. Um, I remember <laughs> seeing it in the cinema and fidgeting all the way through it and just being really um, aggravated by it. I'm interested, you touched on one of the points that I wanted to mention, Scott, which is that I feel like he, I feel like Fincher has really had to work to crowbar his sort of um, technical flourishes in here for the sake of it, and they really stick out, you know, the impossible camera shots, like, up through the floors and through, like, banisters and stuff, and I'm like, is, is that necessary? No. Um, I feel like I don't. I don't feel like this is most assured work, and I feel it's a little bit immature in that sense that he was still kind of a little bit in love with some of his trademark aesthetic touches and, and felt he had to put them in. Um, and I think it might have been a better film without them. I also think the characterizations, the portrayals. I don't pick any two characters in this film, and I don't buy the interaction between them, whether it's Jodie Foster and her daughter or any of the members of the the gang. I just, especially the gang, I found that really sort of that um, interaction between them quite strained and unauthentic. But I can't really put my finger on any one thing that that wound me up. And What annoyed uh, me a little bit about that interaction with the gang is that it does seem like they've just put a Craigslist post out for would you like to rob yeah. a house with me <laughs> yeah. rather than them having any sort of... <laughs> exactly, any sort of history or understanding of each other. I, I came back to it and I watched it and I thought, do you know what, I'm going to give it a fair go because, yeah, um, maybe I knew enough other people because, I mean, the, the movie commercially was a success, right? And I know enough people who had watched it and were like, oh, God, no, I really liked it. And I thought, is it just one of those where I've just been in the wrong mood and I've just gone in with the wrong mindset? I don't remember having a shitty day or a shitty week when I went to see it, but I'll give it the benefit of the doubt. And I watched it again a couple of years ago and, yep, still hated it. <laughs> um, I can't really I can't really qualify exactly what it is. I put my finger on it. I just, I, I really just don't like this film. I don't feel that any particular, you know, any two aspects of it hang together um, properly. I don't find it a realistic scenario, um, uh, not in the same way as the game, but I still find suspension of disbelief is sort of called upon a little bit too uh, readily. Um, and yeah, I just it's, it's not a film I'll ever come back and watch again. Yes, I think the suspension of disbelief there too. You mentioned that they are exploding gas canisters. There's destruction of walls with sledgehammers, all of which in a building of connected to two others and it takes the entire night for anybody to call the police and it's only somebody distantly um, when they contact the ex-husband yeah they contact the police none of the neighbors do nobody in the street heard all the explosions or anything no 
Um, and the gunshots. Yes. Um, or means like the, the explosion of the gas canister, the hammering, as a nuisance call, like to say, look, there's a really annoying noise coming from this house. Not that necessarily think anything was wrong. So that's a that's a bit of a problem. Uh, you said about the Craigslist. It was set in Scott. New York's death borough. That's why. <laughs> <laughs> the upper death side. <laughs> yes, um, Scott, you mentioned about the the Craigslist thing, which I kind of agree with too. But you've got Dwight Yoakam's characters. Well, these films often have one sort of crazy psychopath character who can't really control just wants to hurt people right so yeah. we best like turns out he's wearing a necklace made of ears and stuff yeah. like that yeah. because it's um it's what's expected <laughs> in the genre yeah and yes it suffers for that that said i find it perfectly serviceable it's competent i enjoy it but mm. after i finished watching it i'm really not going to think about it again yeah i watched it a couple of nights ago for the first time in it may actually be the first time since just after the DVD came out, so 14 years, something like that. And it's like, yeah, okay, I, I'm not, not enjoying this. Um, it's okay, but it's absolutely nothing special. It's, mm. And really, yes, the... You know, he's, it always feels like he's got pretensions of being Hitchcock or something when the film begins with the the way the music plays and you have the... The credits yeah, written over the, way the, the credits building. are over the cityscape. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It feels like he has ambitions of being Hitchcockian. Yeah, it calls to mind stuff like North by Northwest. Yeah, something like that. Yeah, and then, and the film just doesn't have the substance in it. Um, I like Jodie Foster in it well enough, and this is possibly the only time that Christian Stewart's even vaguely tolerable, largely because <laughs> she's mostly unconscious through the film. Um, and I find I generally find Forrest Whitaker um, accurate I generally find Forrest Whitaker um, very watchable but except when he's going Nagini I mean Jedi (laughs) (laughs) Uh, but yeah it's I don't know it's competent but not exciting yeah that's the thing is I'm, I'm prepared. To, I'm prepared to accept that I'm maybe just wrong, or it's maybe just not the film for me. Because I know enough people who feel at least um, that way about it, Drew, if not like more positive about it, uh-huh. to just think, you know what, it's just one of those things. This film's not meant for me. Very possibly, that's fine. But there's certainly, I think, it's hard to argue that the the stylistic flourishes feel out of place. Mm. Um, I mean, do we really need a shot where you see the inside of the elevator? while Jared Leto's outside of it. I understand what an <laughs> elevator looks like. It wasn't really adding much. I'm capable I'm capable of imagining both the inside and the outside of an elevator simultaneously. <laughs> but thanks for visualising it for me. You've confirmed my suspicions, David. Yes, and then shots to the wall, which um kind of ambiguous, I felt, actually, when Jodie Foster's creeping up and Dwight Yoakam and he's standing behind the door with his pistol pulled out mm. and, like, right, well, I am... 90% sure that's like a cut through to show that from instead of using a different camera angle to show from the other side of the wall but it doesn't half look like so there's just like a bench or something in there and he could actually just look out the other side of that pillar and see her yeah it's kind of I'm badly done that I think yeah um, so yes it's it's a serviceable thriller I, I don't regret watching it but I would not be in any particular hurry to watch it again and it, I, I think it's more competent than the game because mm. while there are some issues of suspension of disbelief, yeah. 
the whole film isn't going to fall apart because no. of so many of them. No, it's the le- less egregiously so in this in this instance, right? Hey, um, so let's move on then to 2007's Zodiac. Uh, to this day, nothing much captures the popular imagination like a serial killer, especially so one who evades justice. Uh, of those few notable examples of murderers who remain anonymous to this day, one name towers above the rest, that of the Zodiac Killer. Operating in San Francisco from December 68 to September 69, the Zodiac Killer was responsible for five confirmed deaths through that period, though they may have been responsible for disappearances dating back as far as 1963. The killer became part of the zeitgeist mainly through a series of cryptic and coded notes with which, presumably, he taunted the San Francisco Police Department and local media. Needless to say, the killings have inspired all manner of cultural references across movies, music and literature, among the latter of which Robert Graysmith's book Zodiac is one of the preeminent examples. In this book, written by a former cartoonist at the San Francisco Chronicle, that forms the basis for David Fincher's film of the same name, a detailed though somewhat artistically embellished account of the efforts of the SFPD and local Chronicle journalists to trace the identity of the serial killer. It is the movie's concern with the procedural aspect of the investigation and, in particular, its effect on the lives of those involved in the hunt that most sets Zodiac apart from other examples of the genre. While we do witness several of the confirmed murders taking place, details of the killer himself are obviously thin on the ground, and rather than spend time on idle conjecture, both Graysmith's source and Fincher's movie busy themselves with the facts that we do know, those of the aftermath. The action here focuses on a period between 1969 and 1975, if I remember correctly, uh, opening with the attack on teenagers Darlene Ferrin and her boyfriend Mike McGough. Ferrin succumbed to her injuries, but McGough survived, and one month later the Zodiac sent the first of his letters directed to the staff of the San Francisco Chronicle, landing on the desk of crime reporter Paul Avery, Robert Downey Jr., and piquing the interest of cartoonist Graysmith, played here by Jake Gyllenhaal. Initially reluctant to take Graysmith seriously, Avery begins to share his information with the cartoonist when he cracks the coded letter, and soon the pair become obsessed with the hunt for the killer. Meanwhile, after two more killings, police detectives Dave Toskey, Mark Ruffalo and Bill Armstrong, Anthony Edwards, <laughs> pick up the case for the SFPD and so begins the long, arduous and exhaustive search for one of history's most enigmatic and terrifying serial killers. For a two and a half hour plus movie that takes place mostly around office desks and police interview rooms, Zodiac manages to remain compelling viewing throughout, due in no small measure to the skill of its cast who, to a man, are operating close to, if not very much at the top of their game. And I do mean to a man, for this is a veritable sausage fest of a movie, though that is somewhat necessitated by the source material. Just keep in mind that, if it's of vital importance to you, this movie will not be passing the Bechdel test. Uh, Much like his cast, there is a strong case to be made for this movie representing Fincher at the top of his game, a sentiment that has gathered some momentum as the years have passed. Whether or not you agree with that, it's hard to deny that this is probably the director's most mature and assured work to date, Mm -hmm. balancing in a refreshing reining in of his trademark technical flair with a trust in both cast and source material that one might not have expected just a few years prior. The movie only gets better as the Zodiac himself begins to fade from the public conscience and one begins to question who are his greatest victims, the murdered themselves or the increasingly embattled police and reporters sacrificing themselves in pursuit of a ghost. It is at this point of broken marriages, resignations and demotions that Zodiac is most satisfying. 
As the years have passed, I find myself more and more drawn to Zodiac, and even now, as I find myself gravitating in that late 30s way toward the comfort of my favourite slippers, I can <laughs> envisage a time where it may even supplant Fight Club as my favourite Fincher movie. Uh, certainly, it's one of those, like Casino or The Conversation, which, while not at the absolute top of my favourites list, I can pretty much happily stream from the network drive at any time and be guaranteed to find myself utterly engrossed. Every bit as compelling as the events on which it's based, Zodiac has deservedly earned its stripes the hard way, finding its feet on home media where it struggled in cinemas. A bit like a stabby, shooty Shawshank. Absolutely recommended. Yes, I, this is the the Fincher film closest to challenging Fight Club for my favourite status also. And there's really not much between them. And they're such different films, I thought you can compare them. And I have room in my life for both. Um... <laughs> I would perhaps take issue with your suggestion that Zodiac towers above all other hitherto unnamed um, serial killers because there is that little known fella called Jack the Ripper. But true, true that, true that. But maybe let's not argue about serial killers. That would be a silly thing to do. <laughs> yes, um, there's really not much I can add to what you've said because I agree almost wholeheartedly with the entire thing. Everybody in it is in such good form. Um, this was. Um, right before, I remember mean, the same year actually as Rob Downey Jr. did Iron Man but you know, after Kiss Kiss Bang Bang and The Scanner Darkly, that's the year when he's really, if he was doing his renaissance after his drug problems, he's superb in it, Jake yeah. Gyllenhaal's fantastic the ever dependable Mark Ruffalo is the ever dependable Mark Ruffalo he's mm-hmm. fantastic uh, it's just it's a really really entertaining film it's so well told and as you say fincher does issue his usual pawn sean for hyper stylized things i remember thinking at the time to the scene in the the basement of mm. the projectionist that mm. jake gyllenhaal's in and it's a really tense scene yeah but i think a younger fincher would have tried to make that somehow really stylized yeah, maybe in a similar vein to Panic Room of having like you know, seen through the floor or something and seeing the other yeah. guy, something like that. We would have seen both the inside and the outside of the projector simultaneously. <laughs> um, yeah, there's something almost mundane about the way that scene shot. Mm-hmm. It's kind of gloomy and it isn't particularly stylized or anything. It's just he's in a gloomy basement, but the the acting and the the build up of everything that's gone before is enough. And Fincher has matured a lot and knows to be restrained in that sequence. Yeah. It's like he's, he knows to have faith in the, like, the story is enough. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So that's when you say it about it being his most mature work in so many ways. And like he's right, I don't need to be flashy here. There are times for flashy. This isn't it. Um, just let the story and the actors do their job and I'll just get the best performance out of them I can. Yeah. And boy, does he. And all the stuff, all the technical stuff he does in this, it's all in, it's all in, you know, it's all in the background in service of like the period kind of stuff. It's all sort of like background replacement stuff and whatnot mm-hmm. to make yeah, to make it look like 1970s San yeah, Francisco. So yeah, so really authentic like skyline stuff that, that probably people wouldn't have cared about. But he's kind of focuses attention there in a, in a search for authenticity rather than yeah. you know um, bombast. And, and I think that really works too because even if you weren't particularly aware of it. I think you might just like notice something that didn't look quite right and so you you slip out of the moment a little. Yeah, without really knowing why. Yeah, uh, whereas that just that 
it it really looks the part. It looks so good for that that era. Um, and I mean, there's even a little bit of humour in the film too. So it just, um, but even so much just eleven. It's more just that it rounds the characters. Mm. Um, like Mark Ruffalo's Dave Tosky and then Anthony Edwards saying that I uh, know McQueen got the thing from him with the gun. Oh no, I think it's Avery says that his name, but uh, Rod Dengie tells Jake Gyllenhaal that Steve McQueen got the thing for Bullet from Dave Tosky, and there's a little bit of that just build character nicely without being mm. so overt. Yeah, and you know, as as dark as the you know the the actual the events and the material are, I mean, it's not realistic to suspect that these guys working in this job is very much. If they didn't, at some point, if they didn't laugh, they probably would have cried. Mm-hmm. It's it's you know, it's not making fun of anything. It's uh, it's all right to have a laugh in a film like this because that would be some people's natural coping mechanism mm-hmm. for for being taunted by a serial killer. Yes, um, I think there are only two. I was going to say issue, and it's not quite the right word. The only two things about this film leave me slightly dissatisfied. One is just after spending so long, and again, it's necessary because of how it happened in real life, trying to base it as much on real events as possible. Um, one is that the time just sort of seems to fast forward spectacularly um, between the last contact of the the Zodiac and then when he speaks to him again when Dave Tosky's been kicked out of kicked out of homicide it's like that's like it feels like a jump rather than I don't know the site the progress of time doesn't feel obvious yeah the first time the first time I watched this I don't know if I I think I must have just looked away at the wrong time to like stretch over and you know pick my pick up my drink or something like that and I just remember suddenly coming thinking wait a minute uh, yeah wait a minute is this like five years later what um, but I didn't really, I didn't have that problem. Um, I didn't have that problem, you know, from from second view and onwards sort of thing. But yeah, yeah, you knew it was going to happen. Though, so. Yeah, there is a danger that if you're not paying attention sort of closely, you can the the uh, the time frame of it can slip away a little bit, and I think you probably might miss uh, you might miss some vital stuff. But that aside, yeah, I would agree. So yeah, so that small point, and the other thing is simply the ending. But that is not a problem with the film or the writing or the direction. It's just simply a problem with reality and that yeah. they never caught him. And that's when they, they do so much investigation and they're like 99% sure it's that Lee guy mm-hmm. um, that is the, and everything they've portrayed in the film suggests, well, it's him, right? It's him. Surely it's him. Arrest him. And then and it gets to the end of the film and the guy identifies him, but he's dead. Yeah. And so it's kind of, it's, the end of the film always leaves me in a bit of a downer because it's so unsatisfying. But again, it's absolutely nothing to do with the film. That's just life. Yeah. And they never caught him. Well, if it was that guy, they never caught him. Certainly they have not caught anybody else so far. So, and, um, But other than that, it's fantastic. It's endlessly watchable. Uh, so well produced. Um, so assured the direction in this compared to some of his earlier stuff. Definitely Panic Room where like... It's like he wanted to make it flashier than the, the script really deserved. In this case, he's gone the other way. It's like it doesn't need flashiness. And, yeah. yeah, thoroughly, thoroughly enjoy this film. It feels like he took a time out from Panic because it was like five years between the five and years. Panic yeah, it was a long yeah. time. It feels like maybe he, st- he took a time out and reevaluated stuff. But um, yeah, it feels like a different Fincher came back after that half decade away, yeah. and um, all all the more glad for it. But there is a there is a man. Uh, Sometimes the man 
the right man for a time and place, and that man is Scott, and he has yet to give us his opinion on Zodiac. I have very little to say that is not in complete agreement with you guys, so I will <laughs> largely hold my peace. I'll just say as a Mark of Fincher's career that this that this isn't his best film, but most directors would never come close to anything this great, let alone this just being a top five contender. And uh, it's hugely recommended from, from me as well. Uh, I enjoyed it a great deal back in 2007, and if anything, I enjoy it much more today. Uh, yeah. Great performances, subject matter, and the subject matter, and the investigation is all very compelling. And Fincher's more subdued and strong, but still strong sense of visual style and storytelling make it a tremendous watch. So yes, I concur. And Just you are point. the Zodiac Killer. So moving on to uh, as, as we've established by this point, <laughs> modern technology has proven that it's Ted Cruz. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Yes, I that saw modern, it on Twitter. That modern technology, whose name we shall not mention in this podcast. Uh, so 2008's The Curious Case of Benjamin Button. Based on F. Scott Fitzgerald's short story, The Curious Case of Benjamin Button is the tale of a boy born in the earliest, earliest, early 20th century with the appearances and problems of an elderly man. His mother dies in childbirth and his despicable father abandons the baby at a nursing home, where he is cared for and raised by workers there. And, in Benjamin Button's hook, young old Benjamin begins to age backwards. While at the nursing home, he meets a young girl called Daisy, who will grow up to become Kate Blanchett, and she and Benjamin will cross paths at several points throughout their lives, eventually falling in love and having a child together, after which their physical ages will begin to diverge from one another again. The bulk of the film follows Benjamin as he becomes younger and stronger, gets a job on a New Orleans tugboat, and gets involved in World War II. And also he has love affairs, um, and much of this plays out like some unholy and wholly lesser mishmash of Forrest Gump and Tim Burton's Big Fish, until eventually old young Benjamin dies as an infant, because he shrinks just like humans don't. Internal logic is not one of this film's strong points. In the arms of the elderly Daisy. And that's it. While it tries unsuccessfully to cover one man's entire life, it's still a very narrow hook on which to try to hang an entire near three-hour movie. Very much a case of style over substance, the earlier... Almost fairy tale like sections are reasonably entertaining, and it's certainly not something that I could call bad, but it is pretty much pointless. I really don't know what it's trying to say or why. Several years ago, uh, Scott and Craig posited that the film's only question seemed to be Wouldn't it be weird if someone aged backwards? <laughs> and nine years on, I have absolutely nothing to add to that. It seems to have nothing to say about relationships or the human condition. Now, to be fair to Brad Pitt, he is generally pretty engaging and watchable throughout as the titular Benjamin, even though he is saddled with acting against a particularly bland and insipid, and at times downright annoying, Kate Blanchett, and levels of interest in, and enjoyment of, the film and the presence of Kate Blanchett on screen have an inverse relationship. 
But the director at times feels missing in action because the film is sorely in need of a direction and that's rather odd for Fincher. As we um, release this podcast too in the month of the Academy Awards, let me not miss this opportunity to mention how little regard I have for the Oscars. The Curious Case of Benjamin Button received 13 Academy Award nominations. 13 for a three-hour treatise on how it'd be a bit awkward if you were born old and got younger. I think that the cloud of expletives I vented when I went to check that figure is still floating somewhere over the North Sea at this moment. 13 nominations for, though not the worst, clearly one of the least substantial films in Fincher's directorial career. Madness. For someone who hates the Oscars so much, you do talk about them an awful lot. I know, I was aware of that when I wrote that sentence earlier this evening. <laughs> but we're going to forgive you because we love you. Um, yeah, I um, I actually refused to watch this film again um, because, uh, as you rightly pointed out, Drew, the first time I attempted to watch Benjamin Button, I was enraged by the fact that he did not die a giant baby, which, by the film's own <laughs> plot logic, is exactly what should have happened. And if you so flagrantly eschew your own internal logic as that, God damn it! I want my giant dead baby. Then I am not going to give you the time of day. <laughs> I want my baby back, baby back, baby back, giant, giant baby back ribs. Um, <laughs> I will, I will have my dead giant baby in this life or the next. And <laughs> um, Yes, I'm simply not going to give you the time of day. Um, so, yes, um, I can only go by my recollection of uh, Benjamin Button back in the day. It has the air of a bit of a fantastical yarn that doesn't have anything to say about anything. And as you rightly say, what it can hope to tell us about um, about relationships, I'm not entirely sure. It doesn't certainly doesn't seem to make any effort to do so. Um, there must be some sort of... Uh, there must be some sort of parable one might weave out of the, the narrative of a man who is who's born a tiny old man and dies not a giant baby, disappointingly. But uh, <laughs> it's certainly not present in this film. And yes, there you go. Um, so while I very much actively did not enjoy it the first time round, because I did not have the courtesy to watch it again uh, recently, or specifically for this podcast, certainly, then I don't feel it's particularly fair to comment on it, because the other films I have at least given some sort of second chance. Uh, this one I have not. Been jamming. We hope you like jamming too. Uh, I did give this a second watch, despite having thought about it not an iota since 2008. <laughs> and now, as then, it's... I don't think it's unenjoyable watching it act, ask its pointless, stupid question with no answer. Um, but as anything other than a shaggy dog story and an excuse to flex some CG muscles, there's really nothing to this film. Um, I would say one thing when you talk about it having so many Oscar nominations. I think it's probably deserved them. There's clearly an awful lot of work put into most aspects of this film, apart from it having any sort of point. And I just can't get over it not having any kind of narrative point to yeah, it. Yeah, technically um, it's a fair old achievement. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's a really well put together film with no purpose whatsoever. Uh, <laughs> and I, I cannot extract that from the rest of it. And that is really why I 
think this is the the least of Fincher's works, probably. Um, it, it's despite having the most outlandish concept of all of Fincher's works, including Alien Three, it's also the least interesting and enjoyable of all his works, including Alien Three. Um, there's just no, nothing here. It's all about flyaway, and I can I, I watched it a few well a few months back now actually, and you know I thought this was roughly entertaining. I wasn't particularly annoyed by any of it, but it has no point, and it's very difficult to really recommend it as anything other than just a, a way to spend some time, and there's much better things you could be doing with that time. So, yeah, <laughs> it definitely could be given a miss. Its point is, literally, as you put it, wouldn't it be weird if this happened? Yes, yes it would. Yes, yes we it could was. all do what you've just done. I just don't have $90 million or whatever to, to put behind my idea getting it on the big screen. But yes, you are right. This thing would be weird if it happened. Now where's my giant dead <laughs> baby? Not weird in any particular way, just generally weird. <laughs> oh dear. Um, fair play. So uh, we are, in that instance, going to move on to uh, something which I think we could probably all agree is certainly a good deal more successful in a number of respects than Benjamin Button, and that would be the social network, Scott. Yes, how could it not? Um Aaron Benjamin Sorkin is someone ripe for covering by himself at some point in this podcast series. The American screenwriter famed for his sharp dialogue, left-wing political readings, and author's viewpoint insertion, and also his apparent inability or unwillingness to write female characters. He's also rather dismissive of this internet thing, viewing the greatest tool humanity has invented for communication and dissemination of knowledge and ideas as a bad thing for reasons he's never been able to properly define, apart from it not existing in the 1940s, which is clearly what he thinks America's ideal society was. An odd choice, perhaps, to tell the story of a site that for many people is the internet, Facebook. This matters less than you'd expect, because the existence of a company that in July 2016 hit a valuation of $350 billion, with analysts suggesting that it could hit $1 trillion, is a footnote in this, let's politely say, speculative look at the dynamics between the company founders, the influencers that come with their success, and the people who claim that their idea was stolen. Uh, said founders, of course, are Mark Zuckerberg, played here by Jesse Eisenberg, and apparently straight up stolen as the characterization for Batman vs. Superman's Lex Luthor, and Andrew Garfield's Eduardo Saverin, the business end of the Zuckerberg's hot new site, The Facebook the social network that I'm sure you're at least passingly familiar with. In the early days, it seems it was largely similar to its current incarnation, but was limited to students at Zuckerberg's alma mater, Harvard University, spreading out amongst the hoity-toity Ivy League universities before lower-class scum such as us could sign up. Other frame, uh, other f- Often framed as depositions in the respective court cases, its two main flashpoints are Mar- Max Minghella's Divya Narenda and Army Hammer's dual-wielding Winklevosses, Cameron and Tyler, claiming that Zuckerberg, Zuckerberg stole their essential idea for the site, and Saverin's claim that he was screwed out of his fair share of the business, largely due to marginalisation, after Zuckerberg went all starry-eyed after meeting Napster founder Sean Parker, played here surprisingly well by modern-day crooner Justin Thunder Timberlake. Veracity aside, and... Framing Zuckerberg's entire 
entire enterprise as a means to reconnect with a barely touched on girl, Rooney Mara's Erica Albright, is one colossal pile of veracity, it's a much more interesting tale than this capsule review of coding and depositions would have you believe, in no small part thanks to Sorkin's gift for snappy back-and-forth dialogue that's more aspirational than realistic, but no less enjoyable for it. All of the leads prove well up to their tasks, with crisp delivery and believable characterization. although particular plaudits plus plea played Plue Pleisenberg, who I don't <laughs> believe I've seen better from. Uh, Fincher gives another masterclass in pacing, and his style again merges seamlessly with the narrative rather than tripping over it. I remembered this as being my favourite film of 2010. A quick check actually revealed that to be Inception, but it's a pretty close-run thing, and given how much I love Inception, spoiler warning, I really love Inception, <laughs> uh, there are certainly few films I would recommend as highly as this. Yeah, it's... Um, I can't disagree with anything you've said, Scott. It's the idea of why he created Facebook, and then it coming to the end where um, he's waiting on the response from Erica Albright that just feels unnecessarily and manufactured mm. but pretty much everything else is really entertaining um, he's uh, Sorkin has shown in the past with the things well, things that, <laughs> that he can speak and I can't Sorkin has shown in the past with things like A Few Good Men that he can write some really snappy dialogue that's set in a relatively what well, could be a relatively boring setting like a um an office where people are investigating something or a courtroom something like that all of that is on show here and it's delivered so so well by jesse eisenberg this is his career best performance and everybody in it's just done really really good form um fincher does have the pacing spot on um again as you see it doesn't let his style get in the way of telling the story it's just the style's there when it's useful and it's a uh, well, certainly one of those based on true stories events that largely has some people with the same name. <laughs> it's about as close as it gets to reality. But other than that, it's it's a very very entertaining, um, very acidly funny um, in points film. Great performances. It's up there alongside Fight Club and Zodiac for me, maybe a tier below. Um, I don't think it approaches the heights of Inception, but it's still a very, very good film indeed, and one that um, I've been able to watch a few times already and can see myself watching a good few times again. Uh, yeah, I broadly agree. There's something I find a little s- sterile about the social network, and I also find it difficult to uh, take to some of the characters for obvious reasons. Uh, there are a number of characters in there who are not designed to be likeable, Um uh, but yes, I don't have a lot to add to what you've said. Uh, I've watched it a couple of times now since it came out, and I have very much enjoyed it. I, I wouldn't, yeah, put it in the same tier as Zodiac or uh, Fight Club, but uh, you know, as a backup piece, again, it's one of those where I think, yeah, even if in this instance I don't personally think like it's Fincher at the top of his game, he's certainly here operating at a level above anyone else, pretty much um, at that point in time with the exception of, as you rightly point out, Scott, um, Chris Nolan with Inception. And, yeah, it's uh, certainly certainly in the top half of the list, put it that way. Um, a really strong entry. Just don't know. I can't, I will can't put my finger take, on what it is. But. I'll take slight issue with that because I think this is as good as Fincher gets. Uh, I, it's, it's perhaps my favourite. I wouldn't really want to slide 
fag papers between this and Zodiac no. and Fight Club. But I think it's up there. I, I really do. I think I think it's a, it, it deserves consideration in the same sentence. Uh, I don't think it's a tier below. I really do like it. I can, res- that's I can respect for the that. So then, The Girl with the Dragon Tattoo. Amidst a veritable tidal wave of needless Hollywood remakes that have swamped us in the last decade or so, The Girl with the Dragon Tattoo stands out as one of, if not the most unnecessary. Arriving a mere two years after its native Swedish counterpart was adapted from Stieg Larsson's novel of the same name, Hollywood Tattoo, as I shall henceforth refer to it, was pretty much greenlit immediately after that movie hit Scandinavian theatres with predictable financial success. In this incarnation... Daniel Craig inherits the lead role of uh, Mikael. I'm trying to think how it was pronounced now. I'm sure it was Mikael. Mikael Blomquist, a disgraced magazine reporter whose recent investigation into the financial affairs of a corrupt businessman and the resulting libel case have left him sans credibility and bereft of life savings. All but ruined, Blomquist finds himself summoned by wealthy industrialist Henrik Wenger, Christopher Plummer, who is looking for Mikhail to secretly investigate the 40-year-old mystery of the disappearance of his niece Harriet while posing as his biographer. Venger's research into Blomkvist Why am I having such a hard time pronouncing Blomkvist? has been conducted by troubled Ward of State Lisbeth Solander, Rooney Mara here taking on the role that brought Numi Rapace to international prominence, who is a social outcast and skilled hacker who comes complete with her own suite of personal setbacks, not least the sexual abuse she encounters at the hands of her care worker. Together, Mikhail and Lisbeth begin to unravel the dark secrets of the Venger family, finding their lives in jeopardy as they go, and encountering the full spectrum of Swedish accents ranging from English to very English. Never having read the source material, nor witnessed the native Swedish adaptation, I can't really comment all that much on Hollywood Tattoo's heritage over... uh, Sorry, heritage other than to say I am reliably informed that rather than an alternative adaptation of the former, it is perhaps more puzzlingly a straight remake of the latter. It's certainly very engrossing, in fact much more so than many recent remakes, and it's definitely both well-crafted and paced enough that its unnecessary running time of over two and a half hours doesn't actually feel all that much of a burden. Having said that, the only notable differences between the original adaptation and this are an English-speaking cast and a six-fold or thereabouts increase in budget. And the questions one must ask are A. Why the studio bothered? And B. Why Fincher? So the purposes of this podcast discussion, the first is most easily answered, namely the studio seeing an already demonstrated cash multiplier that coincides with the recent international preference for Scandinavian crime thrillers in popular culture. So far, so sadly predictable. It bothers me to this day, though, that a director so singular in vision as David Fincher ought to want for the job of remaking someone else's material rather than returning to the source material for his own take. Hollywood Tattoo is perhaps the most low-key of Fincher's works to date, at least in terms of style and flair, though it does certainly check several of the moody aesthetic boxes. There is, however, a slightly sterile bent to the look and feel of this adaptation, sitting in oddly stark contrast to Fincher's Trent reznor fueled credit sequence that looks like a Bond intro went through a Valvoline nightmare and hint... It's tremendously bond-like, isn't it? Isn't it? And hinting at a raw edginess that somewhat disappointingly seldom surfaces. That's not to say that this movie doesn't earn its steep age certificate. In what could otherwise have been a fairly sanitary run-of-the-mill thriller, there are a couple of unflinching depictions of sexual violence. 
And these go some way to informing Lisbeth's character in a short space of time. And there are some thought-provoking sexual liaisons thereafter, which offer a further complexity to Solander's makeup as a character capable of determining her own destiny, and which the film, somewhat refreshingly, does not feel the need to either explain or justify. Overall, I do find Hollywood Tattoo to be more or less on the right side of the here-or-there equation, although I've most certainly seen the same kind of thing done better. As a cultural phenomenon, at least on the evidence presented here, I'm perhaps a little baffled as to quite how the Dragon Tattoo literary universe became the behemoth it did. But on this second viewing of Fincher's cinematic take, I was pleasantly surprised to find it almost as enjoyable a distraction as the first. I doubt I'll be returning to it again any time in the next five years, and it's certainly not a keystone event for its director. However, I might go so far as to recommend it to fans of the genre, who may not already have seen it. The problem being, fans of the genre probably already have seen it. (laughs) Um, Gentlemen, over to you. My main and only uh, issue with this film is that it's a remake. Um, It's the best handled remake I've seen, I would argue. Um, Certainly the modern era, but it's at heart a pointless remake it's not shot for short exactly but it's close enough and having seen the original beforehand it's tough not to see this as completely unnecessary uh, but I do wonder what the perception would be if you hadn't seen the original first um, I that aside I think this is a highly competent retelling of the a pretty effective filler um, it's nothing outright remarkable in the grand scope of Vinci's career, but I think this is just a solidly enjoyable outing. I really, really like this version of The Girl with the Dragon Tattoo. I really, really like the original as well, and I'd say if you had a a straight-up fistfight between them, you might as well just go with the original. Um, But at at the same time, this is every bit as good. And so I think this gets a bit of an unfair rap just due to the fact that it is a remake. Um, it's tough to judge it on its own merits when you start throwing in what is inevitably a pejorative term around these days. But I think if I I watched it through again, uh, because I don't think I'd seen this since its original um, cinema outing, I was surprised at how much I enjoyed it. And the distance from both seeing that and the original uh, Swedish version, which I'd I'd seen but but not since that came out at the cinemas for a while over here... um, I think that did help it immensely. When I watched it for a second time, I was actually really, really enjoying it, uh, really caught up with it, and I think it does uh, capture a pretty effective thriller uh, with a, a clutch of great performances, as you might expect from a, a cast this talented. Um, I w- This is perhaps the surprise for me of the podcast, because if you'd asked me just casually before we started looking at these things again, I would have put this firmly in the lower half, but I actually think it's worth more than that. It deserves a bit more of a, a reappraisal um, mm. in the modern era. I, I think it's actually a really good film and heartily enjoyed it. Do you feel, so do you feel though, that Fincher sufficiently put his stamp on it though? I don't think necessarily that it's a remake is a bad thing, but let's see, I, I didn't see Does the original it? beforehand, but you seem to be confirming what I've been told by other people which is, yeah, it's not shot for shot, but you know, it's, it's close enough that it may well not, you know, have may, may as well not have been. But I would argue, if, even if you think that Fincher does not have his stamp on this film, I still think that it's hugely enjoyable. Yes. So does it matter? Mm. Uh, are, are you judging this as is it being a best Fincher film or just being a good film, which does not necessarily mean that it has to have lots of Fincher trademarks stamped all over it? True that. No, I just mean I'm perplexed as to why he himself would want to take it on board. I'm sure any other number of directors could have done the same sort of job. It just it doesn't feel like a Fincher film. 
Um, whereas with the whereas with most of the others we've spoken tonight, for better or worse, you can kind of, you know, it's not too difficult to find his DNA through it. Whereas this this I struggled the most with because it didn't necessarily feel like a Fincher film. It felt like it could have been the work of, you know, four or five other directors. But definitely, yes, like you say, and like I pointed out, I did actually, I was surprised myself to find that I enjoyed it pretty much as much as I did the first time round. Um, I mean, that, that, that's a reasonable point. If you have a category of Fincheriest Fincher films, this is not in <laughs> the running for it. But I don't think that's a useful category to maintain. <laughs> No, you're quite, you're quite right. You're quite right. It's just one of those things that just, I don't know. I remain a little perplexed by it, but I absolutely take on board what you're saying. Definitely, yeah, yeah. I'm not going to start a fincheriest fincher um, <laughs> drawer anytime soon. Um, Drew, what's your, what's, what's the crack from your your side of the? Um, largely, I'm on board with what Scott said. It's, it's a thoroughly competent thriller in fact a competent kind of sounds like damning it mm. with faint praise and it's not how i mean it at all it's a thoroughly entertaining thriller it's well acted well made i get a little your point craig about it feeling a little sterile in places but i think that's particularly the scenes where they're in the house in the snow mm. and everything's really cold in that place it's not just that mm. feels like actually sterile and it kind of gives that feeling mm. to the film also but it's it's very enjoyable. The uh, yeah, there's not too much. The only two issues that I really have with it, one is that that opening sequence is a Bond opening yeah. sequence, and it, it feels sort of plays has nothing yeah. to do with the rest of the film. It's all about James Bond sets, in this film. It sets a tone it. that the rest of the film resolutely fails to adopt or live up to. Yes, it's so out of place that mm. opening, and it's. I mean, even without Daniel Craig in it, you look at that and think that's a Bond yeah. opening. But you have Daniel Craig in it, and it feels like it's a cash-in. Um, and the other thing is that it's a remake, and that's not the director's fault, and it's still a very good film, he's handled it well. It's not it's the fact that the original exists, and it was only two years before. Mm. I know, and... Uh, our audiences are so averse to subtitles and it drives me crazy. Just learn to read. <laughs> it's not difficult. Yeah, in an ideal world, that's um, it. It just, it, you know, the original would have just been given a wider cinema release and people would have been happy with it. But I know financially that's just not something that the the, the studios, yeah. you know. It's unfortunate the world we live in. Yes, that's my only genuine issue. It's not by any means his best film, but it's very watchable. Well-made film, uh, and what more do you want? Sometimes there's so much dross out there. Yeah, sometimes you just got to be happy for a, a solid, a solid entry. Yeah. Um, and so that brings us bang. Well, not quite bang up to date, but certainly Fincher's most recent effort, um, which is Gone Girl. Drew. Yes, another literary adaptation for Fincher here. Gone Girl is based on Gillian Flynn's best-selling novel of the same name. In Southern Missouri, Nick Dunn, played by Ben Affleck returns home to find signs of a struggle in his house and his wife nowhere to be seen. When the police arrive and find conspicuous evidence, they immediately begin to suspect that Nick is involved in his wife's disappearance. Suspicions which Nick does little to allay with his smarmy manner and less than distraught response to his wife's disappearance. The police investigation soon begins to under... Undercover? <laughs> 
I may have written the wrong word. <laughs> you may have, yes. Uh, the police investigation soon begins to uncover a wealth of evidence that his wife Amy, played by Rosamund Pike, feared for her life from Nick and that he killed her in order to receive an insurance payout. Amy's diaries paint a picture of Nick as an abusive and unfaithful husband and Nick is soon suspect numbers 1 through 100 and vilified in the media. But not only is Nick not guilty, at least not of murder, Amy isn't even dead. Amy, it turns out, is fed up of Nick's infidelity and the breakdown of the marriage, so decides to punish him by framing him for murder and having him executed. Because Amy, it turns out, is a psychopath. As the focus of the story switches from Nick to Amy, she explains how she did what she did. Created false diary entries, cultivated fake friends, staged a murder scene, and why she did it. She's mental. (laughs) (laughs) All the PCs successfully put in place, she leaves the town, changes her identity, and holes up in a motel and waits for all of them to play out. Unfortunately for Amy, she is robbed and has to change her plans. She gets in touch with an old flame, Desi, Neil Patrick Harris, who became a creep and pleads with him for help, telling him the sob story of fearing for her life and faking her own death. Still smitten, Desi agrees to help. Amy then sees Nick on TV trying to clear his name and is reminded of the smarmy, self-assured, smiling bastard Nick that she fell in love with, and decides to return to him. To do that, though, she needs to concoct yet another story to explain her disappearance. And that will, of course, mean faking sexual assault and violently murdering poor old Desi. She's a real piece of work, this one. (laughs) Amy then returns to a shocked and, frankly, terrified Nick, and a police detective certain of the truth but unable to prove it. Amy insists that they try to rekindle the marriage, and, in her delicate way, blackmails and coerces Nick when he, unaccountably, isn't keen to do so. So, it's a potentially disappointing ending that Gone Girl has, but it wouldn't be hard to argue that they deserve each other. The issue I have with the ending is that there are in fact three obvious points for the film to end and I think that the best is clearly the first. When Nick tries to sleep in a separate room with Amy nearby, clearly frightened for his life. But that's a relatively minor point in what is otherwise a thoroughly entertaining thriller. The performances are roundly excellent, Rosemount Pike in particular, and while the twists aren't for the most part great surprises... They're well handled and appropriate to the genre. Thrilling. There's a smattering of humour, often black, and it's well directed and very well shot. While it's not Fincher's best, I think it's still very good and stands up very well to repeated viewing. Interesting. Yeah. I think I felt like um, I want to agree with you. And the problem that I have with the film, I feel like you, you touched on, but you phrased it in a slightly different way, is that when you say there are at least sort of three points at which it could have ended... <laughs> I would agree, but I would say, yes, it's half an hour too long. Um, I feel like the same the same film could have been accomplished in a much shorter time frame um, and with, yes, a more satisfying ending. But broadly speaking, I was... I, I, I can't remember my feelings upon when I, when I first watched Gone Girl. 
um, which I think was when it first became available to rent. Um, I think I had a wrong impression of what it was going to be about and what the tone of the piece would be. Mm -hmm. And I think I might have enjoyed it even more because it sidestepped my expectations a little bit and it delivered something different to what I expected. I find it... Narratively, I find it a little bit of a stretch. Um, not uh, not to the extent that the game was a stretch by any means, but um, I'm, it was within... It was within ranges of tolerance and I actually did really really enjoy it with that one caveat of I felt it kind of overstayed its welcome a little bit but uh, by and large yeah it's definitely one of the stronger entries in uh, in the canon and again really great performances from both Pike and uh, Affleck um, certainly one of Affleck's better performances and yes um, I would pretty safely recommend it to just about anybody um, it's not um, by any means my favourite of uh, Fincher's works but I would quite happily watch it again if someone decided they wanted to whack it on the telly I wouldn't stop them I think of all the Fincher films we revisited as part of this podcast this was the one I was most worried about because I hugely enjoyed it first time round but I guess it might not be quite so much fun knowing the turns and the sort of narrative in advance uh, <laughs> and watching it but I think that's yeah. a, a vein turned to be in vain uh, it turns out the Let's call them twists. I don't think that's quite the right term. Uh, but they have little rela- relation to the overall enjoyment of the piece. It's just hugely effective and mischievous, trashy little story that's just enjoyable even when you know the flow of it. And it's, I think it's a commendably dark and open-ended ending, which, uh, uh, particularly for a mainstream piece of cinema, uh, it's, it's uh, fairly brave in that respect. It's all really well acted. Relatable characterizations, pacey delivery... It's a it's a pot boiler, but it's moved through so stylishly and swiftly that I don't think you notice that, mm. and it might not bear the analysis of something like Fight Club. Uh, but for my money, in terms of it just being a purely enjoyable film, it's yeah. up there amongst the top of Fincher's works. Uh, it's, it's not a great work in the way that you could sit and write reams about the likes of zodiac or uh, fight club but i think in terms of it just being an outright yeah. enjoyable piece of trash this is great and i think it's yeah. <laughs> up there amongst his best works yeah it's absolutely. one of those where it's it's not really a criticism in fact it's a big plus for me to say that it, it, like you say scott it's essentially it's kind of trashy pulp material but and it set it delivers exactly what it sets out to do and i yeah. don't think that's yeah. necessarily a, a bad thing um yeah, I had I had yeah, something else that I felt was cromulent to say there, but I can't think what it was now. <laughs> yeah, it's you can say that it's simply a genre movie, um, but one done particularly well, yeah. and yeah. so that's absolutely yes, Sometimes fine. you don't need any more than that. <laughs> yeah, it's just you do a thing very very well, yeah. then that's all. Yeah, you and you touched on it as well, Scott. I mean, you're absolutely right. With a film like this, the concern is always going to be anything that depends on, you know, narratively first time round. It depends on the twist. You're always going to be a bit trepidatious about going back to it because yes, I know those twists now, and it's obviously the mark of both. You know a good piece of storytelling but also a good technical piece of filmmaking and great performances that you can go back knowing that stuff in advance and that you've enjoyed it just as much um, as accomplishment in and of itself so yes it's, uh, I think in its own quiet way it's one of the more interesting Fincher movies probably um, but there we go that rounds out the list quite nicely um, what's uh, what surprised me a little bit about this conversation actually I think that of all the sort of sort of director works we've looked at certainly with this um, 
this large of a canon. Um, I'm surprised that broadly uh, quite how in agreement we were. I expected our opinions to um, perhaps diverge a little bit more, but we kind of I feel like we were kind of pretty much on board across the the bar, with one or two exceptions. Yeah, there's there's nothing. There was none that I can recall that one of us loved and others hated or anything. It was all within levels mm. of tolerance. Mm. And I think it's a, probably a mark of his quality that I don't think he's really made anything you could outright say is bad. I mean, there's... Mm. there's I might mm. argue with you about the game mm. on that one. But yes, I mean, and I also do want my giant dead baby. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, those those two are clearly the bottom of the list. But uh, even then, you can still look at them and think that there's a few things to recommend in them. It's not like it's just made something that's outright, ah, this is just garbage. We did have some feedback on the old Twitters for okay. this episode. Um, some of it going back to November. Sorry, we've had some scheduling issues. Uh, <laughs> Matt Toller, um, at M Toller on the Twitters. He could probably write a book about Seven. Never been as unsettled by a film as I was after that one. Um, his all-time favourite. Uh, Zodiac. Uh, Toshi revisits the cab murder scene months later. Perfectly and wordlessly conveys the frustration behind that case. And he thinks that his only real miss is Benjamin Button which never really sold me on a concept and was too derivative of Forrest Gump. Bringing it more up to the, the modern era, uh, he was also baffled by Fincher's choice of projects at times, but he elevates even the odd ones, best in the business right down, in his his opinion, and he wishes that he'd venture back over to sci-fi at some point. And mm. I kind of agree with that. I always look forward yeah. to some decent, well-made, intelligent sci-fi, and you don't get a lot of it, so he'd be a, no, a good way to do it. It's a rare commodity, and I would welcome Fincher. Give, give Fincher also. a Star Wars spin-off. <laughs> that would be interesting. Uh, also, Stephen Nelson. I don't know. Fincher doing the Blade Runner sequel. That would maybe work. Mm. Mm. Yeah. Mm. Bit late in the day for that. I guess I know. This is fantasy casting, Scott, not reality. Fair enough. And uh, Stephen Nelson, at Scott's actor, on the Twitters again. Uh, Seven is his masterpiece. Uh, followed by Fight Club and then Zodiac. Alien 3 was a damn shame, but the assembly cut resurrected it measurably. No, it didn't. Why do people keep saying that? You're mad. You're crazy. What's going on with this? Um, if you like superfluous content and bad CG, yes, go for the assembly cut, but otherwise just stick with the original vision as the studio intended it, if not Fincher himself. <laughs> I think that is our lot. Cool. Well, thank you all very much for the feedback. It's always greatly appreciated. Uh, Scott, where can people get in touch with us if they so desire? You can find us on Facebook. That's at uh, facebook.com slash film And the Twitters, again, huge thanks to everyone who retweets or reposts our uh, little links to our episodes. If you can spread the word, that is fantastic. Particularly Definitely. the folks over at the Magic Lantern podcast who uh, never fail to, to uh, give us a spread some love and that's very much appreciated uh, so that's twitter.com slash fudsonfilm or at fudsonfilm if you're already there and you can of course email us that's podcasts at fudsonfilm there you go you have no excuse for not getting in touch we will be back in 10 days with our compare and contrast episode looking at Capote and Infamous however until then I was Craig, Scott was Scott goodbye and Drew was obviously Drew this is your life just ending one minute at a time yes, none of your beautiful unique snowflakes now go do something far more productive bye